Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thanks for joining us. Sad to say Donald Trump and his lying machine sputters on in this episode and I really do hate to say it because I hate to give this man any time whatsoever. But what can you do? As the January 6th committee continues its work, Trump continues lying. Now half of his appointees and inner circle are trying to act like heroes for telling him he lost the election. That would be the 2020 election. Ever wonder who's backing Trump's tall tales with their hard cash? We'll tell you. And he didn't just throw Mike Pence under a bus, he threw him under an express train. The GOP is putting its strategy to undermine climate action legislation into full throttle, and I do mean that literally. Apple workers in Maryland vote to unionize, and finally, Herschel Walker can't seem to stop lying. But let's start with Trump, much as I hate to. The January 6th committee keeps digging, and more and more people say they told Donald Trump that he lost the 2020 election. Even some of his staunchest allies now say they told him before, during, and after the insurrection that his various schemes to remain in power were not going to work. However, and this is important, don't call these people heroes even if they're telling the truth now. These same people were Donald Trump's enablers throughout his bizarro world presidency. They facilitated his thousands of falsehoods, leaving aside for a moment the 2020 election. They didn't have the guts to stand up when it counted, at least those who didn't resign in disgust. Worse still, the election lie has become central to who the Republican Party is in 2022. How else to explain why a Donald Trump endorsement for dog catcher has become a badge of honor? And how do you get that endorsement? You have to trumpet the election lie now and forever. That's why the Republican response to the January 6th committee's truth-telling has been met with distractions, indifference, and out-and-out lying. And I do mean out-and-out lying. There's been a good deal of hand-wringing and stories in the media about how Trump's followers will believe not only that he won the presidency, but also that his time in office was America's best four years ever. Many will avoid actual facts like the plague if those facts challenge their basic assumptions about America and their place in it. Some in media think it's availing to engage with such people, as if being nice to them will make them see sense. I disagree. I have many friends who, to one degree or another, support Donald Trump. Not all think the election was stolen, but most think he was a great president, the best in their lifetime. My solution? Don't even bother to argue with them. They are who they are, and their beliefs aren't central to my core beliefs. The GOP leadership, however, is some piece of work. What has been their response, for example, to the fact that Trump has been raising hundreds of millions of dollars from supporters ostensibly to probe so-called massive voter fraud, only to have that money fall down a rabbit hole called an election defense fund that didn't in fact exist? The response? Crickets. Instead, Republican office holders and wannabes would rather focus disgraced alleged intellectual Dinesh D'Souza and his film 2,000 Mules, as if that is in fact truth-telling. What they're doing is saying, well, okay, 
the January 6th committee is doing what it's doing, but the truth lies with Dinesh, Dinesh, that is, D'Souza, a guy who went to jail, I believe until he was pardoned by somebody. And of course, when it suits their purpose, they say the public is focused on rising prices of just about everything and the baby formula shortage. And they're right. The public is focused on that. Yet how does the average Trump supporter explain his seeming relentless criticism of his former running mate, Mike Pence? As recently as last week, Trump raked him over the coals yet again for certifying the results of the 2020 election. Here is what he said, and I'm quoting. Mike Pence had a chance to be great. He had a chance to be historic. Mike did not have the courage to act. He added, Mike was afraid of whatever he was afraid of. And what was Pence afraid of? Could it have been people storming the Capitol, threatening to hang him, bringing gallows to the Capitol, to the seat of American democracy, and talking about lynching the Vice President of the United States? Now, don't get me wrong, Mike Pence is not necessarily a hero either, but he certainly did not deserve the kind of abuse that was hurled at him on January 6th. Trump said what he said at the Faith and Freedom Coalition's annual Road to Majority Conference in Nashville. It's supposed to be a prelude to the 2024 presidential race, but few candidates other than Trump even bothered to show up. And yet it is, again, not just about Donald Trump. In the wake of January 6th, numbers of corporations decided not to contribute to PACs political action committees that represented congressional election deniers. Toyota, for example, stopped donating, started again, then stopped, and then started again. In the last month where records are available, April of this year, Fortune 500 companies and trade groups donated $1.4 million to members of Congress who refused to certify election results. Most of them say they donated equally to both parties, yet one party, while certainly not perfect, hasn't had so many people who voted to suspend democracy. Who, you might ask, are some of these companies? And here's the top 10. Coke Industries, Boeing, Home Depot, Valero Energy, Lockheed Martin, UPS, Raytheon, Marathon Petroleum, General Motors, and FedEx. Only FedEx and Coke among this top 10 never said they'd stop donating. Here's some more math for you. Of the 249 companies who said they'd stop funding the 147 congressional deniers, more than half are back at it. Why, you might ask? That can be summed up in one word, access. They want their calls returned, and ideally, the support of these people when it comes to legislation they either want to promote or want to kill. This, folks, is how politics works. These companies also know that most Americans will never hold them to account for this double dealing. Never hold them to account. Because if they thought Americans would hold them to account, perhaps they would have stopped donating and never started again. And the wheel keeps turning. Up next, just in case you think the Republican Party is sitting on its hands waiting for the midterms, 
They come along and try to undermine climate change legislation, both on and off the books. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. The United States Supreme Court will sometime soon hand down a ruling that could have a devastating impact on the federal government's ability to tackle climate change. The New York Times in an article says this is part of a multi-year strategy to hobble the federal government's efforts to live up to its responsibilities in making the planet and the nation a habitable place to live for future generations. They want the high court to do nothing less than allow the rewriting of environmental law and cripple the Environmental Protection Agency. The case at issue is West Virginia versus the EPA. The approach by Republican attorneys general, conservative strategists, and others wants to stop the EPA from what they call interfering with the American economy. Now, think about that for a minute. These folks are saying that an environmental agency of the federal government is impeding America's economy, impeding America's economy by issuing regulations that would, in most cases, help keep Americans alive. So it's the economy versus life itself. That's the choice that these people have, in fact, made. They want Congress, not agencies like the EPA, to set American environmental policy. There's a very good reason why Congress has historically shied away from setting environmental policy. And that quite simply is because they really don't know enough. The EPA are the people with the knowledge. What's interesting here is that the plaintiffs share donors with members of Congress that pick the most conservative justices on the Supreme Court. If they're successful, America's leadership on global warming, such as it is, could be in serious jeopardy. And this case is only one of many being brought in courts across the country. One wonders if they might overplay their hand as temperatures both in the U.S. and around the world continue to climb. Has anybody noticed we're not even all the way through June yet? And there have been record temperatures in Western Europe. There have been record temperatures in some American cities. That's not global cooling, folks. That is global warming. Yet here's what's at stake, according to the New York Times. Quote, and I'm quoting from their article here, victory for the plaintiffs in these cases would mean the federal government could not dramatically restrict tailpipe emissions because of vehicles' impact on the climate, even though transportation is the country's largest source of greenhouse gases. The government also would not be able to force electric utilities to replace fossil fuel-fired power plants, the second largest source of planet warming pollution with wind and solar power. And the executive branch could not consider the economic costs of climate change when evaluating whether to approve a new oil pipeline or similar project or environmental rule. Has anyone told Greta Thunberg about this? Make no mistake, this is all about money. Big oil and its friends 
don't want a bunch of tree huggers telling them they have to wind down their greenhouse gas guzzling ways. They make it far too much on maintaining the status quo. And they're putting their faith in Congress because that is where their friends are. Never mind, the public is left to pay more and more for fossil fuels that are killing us. Too bad, these companies need to make theirs. And when I say theirs, we're talking about money. Money drives so much in politics, in public policy, and the American people, I believe, and you know, I, I haven't gone out and done a survey about this, but I believe that the American public simply is being kept ignorant, kept ignorant about the role money plays in the decisions that are made, decisions that are made that affect every life in this country. It's far easier, for example, to blame Joe Biden for high gas prices than it is to examine who's making the money and where it's going once the oil companies get it in their greedy little hands. However, the world is not all bad news. Apple store workers in Towson, Maryland have voted to unionize. That's right, unionize. The initial tally was 65 for, 33 against. This makes that store the first Apple outlet to unionize in the country. As is the habit of management when their workers talk about unionizing, Apple pushed back and they pushed back hard. Still, the workers stood strong. They'll be joining the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers once they have a contract. This will likely buoy the spirits of other Apple stores where workers are trying to unionize, especially in New York. They had a union drive in Atlanta but apparently the Communication Workers of America, which is where those workers were trying to join, pulled back because they said that the tactics Apple used in Atlanta made it impossible to have a fair and free election. I remain perplexed, and will always be perplexed, about why these corporate giants fear a unionized workforce in the first place. Will they suddenly become unprofitable? Don't make me laugh. Yet the Starbucks, Amazons, and Apples of the world continue to employ, at times, questionable tactics to keep unions out. Could this really be about control? Control of wages, control of working hours, especially control of working hours. A lot of these companies really want their workers to be there when they want them there, which means if that involves having a shorter rest time between shifts. Too bad. You don't like it? Don't come back. That's how they've been operating up until now. And now, as they are challenged by workforce unionization, they push back by telling people, oh, the unions are this, the unions are that, they'll only take your money. I know these things because I worked in a union during the last part of my work life and saw the tactics that were used. They'll bring people in and act as though they are friends of the unionization efforts when in fact they're working for management. I've seen this with my own two eyes. So kudos to the Apple workers in Towson, Maryland. This is only part of the battle though. Now they have to get Apple to sign an actual 
contract. That's step two, and that takes a lot of work also. And finally, Herschel Walker was a great football player. As a Senate candidate, maybe not so much. This is The Intersection. You're at The Intersection with Mark Riley. It's what summer listening is all about. Welcome back to The Intersection. Herschel Walker is finding out running for the United States Senate isn't quite as easy as mowing down opponents on a football field. There were questions about his actually graduating from the University of Georgia. He says he did, but he didn't. He also said he was in the top 1% of his class. I don't know if that was like in grade school or junior high or high school. It certainly was not at the University of Georgia. He was not in the top 1% of his class because he didn't graduate. Then a super PAC backing him did an ill-advised gas giveaway that may have violated the law. In Georgia, it's a felony to bribe people to get their vote. And now, Walker has hit the trifecta. After his 22-year-old son posted rants on social media about absentee and deadbeat dads, Walker had to admit that he had three children out of wedlock. One is an adult daughter, one is a 13-year-old son, and the third, a 10-year-old son. The youngest son's mother reportedly had to sue Walker to establish paternity and receive child support. Here's the problem. Both Walker and his 22-year-old son have spoken out loudly about the problem of absentee fathers in black communities. Christian Walker, Herschel's son, has called out black men, including Nick Cannon, for not being in the lives of their out-of-wedlock kids. And now his dad has to acknowledge he's got three. Can you say fumble? This is not to say that fatherless children in all communities, not just the black community, all communities. It's a problem. Not to say it isn't. But it is not to say that it is the sole province of black communities because white mothers are also raising children without the benefit of a father. However, when it comes to black folks, it's turned into a pathology. And for Christian Walker to call out a person by name when his own father's house is not in order speaks to one of two things. Either he didn't know about the other three kids or knew and didn't think it would ever become in issue. Either way, it is problematic for Herschel Walker. His people have come back with all kinds of, oh, he's taking care of his kids, he supported them, he loves them. No doubt about that. But the fact of the matter is, when somebody like Herschel Walker jumps up and starts saying, oh, fatherless kids in the black community is a big, big problem, and he's part of that big, big problem, that is extremely problematic. And his son, I guess he may not be doing too many more videos. You never know. But either he didn't know about those other three kids his dad had, or he knew and didn't think it would ever become a campaign issue. That's political naivete at its absolute worst. I'll leave it to you to decide 
which is which. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.